This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicoast. Today is August 16th, 2023. I'm Stark Lundabom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we cover a little bit of everything. It's that part of summer still where there's no big story. Uh, so we're just going to talk about a lot of little stories. There's one thing that might become a big story, though, and we'll lead off with that. But first, before we get into it, patreon.com slash politicoast. Go there, give us a bunch of money, and help us turn this into full-time jobs if we manage to get like, I don't know, 20 times as much money as we have right now. The simmering possible big story coming out today and kind of throughout this week follows the scandal that's evolving and erupting in Squamish as Quest University is collapsing. I don't think we talked about this on the podcast earlier, but if few weeks back, it was officially announced that Quest University was going under. They kind of left all their students out to dry who were midway through their university careers. Quest was a private university founded in 2007, or having its first classes in 2007. And it had some of the highest tuition in Canada, but it also earned a lot of marks as a very good student experience and a very beautiful campus being in Squamish. Uh, but this question around financial regularity kind of really exploded in the last year and following the university's abrupt, uh, closure and announcement that they were selling off the facilities, a lot of scandals have started to come out where I don't think either of us fully wrapped our head around them, but, uh, the CRA has been auditing a lot of the charities and foundations that are connected to Quest University. And a number of those charities have been deregistered for not uh, following the obligations they have under the Income Tax Act. For example, not doing charitable things and not even giving money to the charitable causes. And so the whole thing seems like a money laundering scheme almost. I think that's probably too harsh, but we don't know. It does sound a little harsh, but also, yeah. A red flag or two seems to be there. So the big news today is that as part of the sale, it was leaked initially that Capilano University, the public university in North Vancouver, this I actually looked up its history. It was a community college started by the North Shore School Districts that eventually became a university as BC changed its rules and tried to get more degree-granting institutions. Capilano is going to be buying Quest for about $63 million dollars. Of that, the province is going to kick in $48 million. So two-thirds of this purchase price is the provincial government. And we still have all of these financial irregularities in Quest hanging over this whole deal. But it seems like this deal has been in the works for a while. Quest has obviously been struggling for a while. You don't like overnight collapse usually. Well, isn't it kind of what they uh, say about bankruptcy? It's uh, slowly then all at once. Fair. I guess universities follow the same pattern. We don't have open books because I think one of the big questions here is Quest as a private university was only accountable to 
the owners, the board of directors, I believe it was possibly run as a nonprofit. I don't even know its ownership structure, but um, it was only accountable to itself. So we don't have those details at the moment. Maybe they'll come out as these deals progress, but it does kind of raise this question about like, you know, how do institutions providing a public good operate within our society when they're not um, fully transparent in public? And like, we have lots of private institutions, right? And it's not such a big deal. Yeah, like, I mean, immediately jumps to mind. Like, I think pretty much all the Ivy League schools are uh, not public universities. They're private one so like yeah it, it can work and can work quite well but clearly not here in this particular case absolutely i mean there's definitely been scandals in those ivy league institutions not always uh, financial but you know they are successful universities there's no denying that i guess the questions that this arises is like what is the role of the government moving in here like, obviously, this is a good move for Capilano to open another campus. It sounds like they're going to open up 100 ECE education spots. They're also going to have some, another 400 liberal arts and science positions. So, you know, this is a big expansion of public uh, post-secondary education seats, which is promising. I'm very in favor of that. But, you know, is Capilano on the hook for some of the liabilities from Quest, I don't know. Yeah, that's going to be interesting to see. And that's probably going to the bed on that how they managed to structure the deal, which so far none of the reports covered. But, uh, I don't know. If I was on the uh, Capilano board, wherever they're run, I would, uh, yeah, be pretty wary about uh, any deal that involves Capilano taking on a lot of liabilities. Yeah, here. and it may even be the case that the financial irregularity liabilities are going down with Quest as an organization. It seems like Quest had already sold their property to a third party, and that third party is who is selling the land and buildings to Capilano. Um, so maybe Capilano is shielded, but you know there are a lot of Quest alumni who are saying all of these deals need to be paused until we have a better sense of what's going on. Maybe they're right, maybe they're not. Um, there's just questions that at least... Uh, we need to hear from Selena Robinson, who's the uh, post-secondary education minister and Capilano about to know that this is in the best interest of the province. Speaking of the best interest of the province, the electricity company of our province, BC Hydro, they run EV chargers across this province. I've used a number of them. They're pretty decent and very reliable, which is a shockingly important feature that you didn't i got a i mean i don't have electric car um is that actually yes. a big problem with like oh, unreliable yes. chargers? Uh, so bc hydro is pretty good electrify canada is pretty good but if it's a charger run by a gas station they seem to care a lot more that their fuel pumps work than their charging stations work uh, i've heard nothing but bad about petro canada's uh chargers uh and even at places like electrify canada it'll be like one in ten are often not working. So you might see a bank of five and every other time one of them might be just, you know, out of order or needing to be serviced. So huh, you would not figure it's like particularly complicated technology to run a circuit into it. These, these are very complicated actually, right? Because they don't charge at a constant rate. They talk to the car 
and they adjust their charging rate based on what the car is demanding. And so there's a lot of thinking going around that. And then all of them run on apps. You can't, for the most part right now, just walk up to a charging station and tap it with your credit card like you can with a gas pump because I don't know. I I don't know why you can't do that because it would make sense, but they all want you to create an account and about half of them want you to put $10 onto their system. So I have like, I have eight apps on my phone for EV charging. It's ridiculous. But BC Hydro is the pretty good one other than the fact a lot of their charges are a little slow. They're in the news though because they want to up their rates. And to up their rates, BC Hydro has to go through the BC Utilities Commission, which none of the other charging companies have to, although they basically price their electricity at the same rate as BC Hydro because otherwise they might get undercut. Uh, yeah, so like how uh, you know, gas stations tend to move together because when one drops its price, everyone else follows suit. So they Yeah, and in this cut. case, you have a publicly funded and subsidized one. Uh, BC Hydro's argument is they are massively underselling their electricity, and so they need to actually significantly increase a lot of their charging rates to recover the costs of what they are putting into people's cars. And that's not unreasonable. Um, to give some numbers... Yeah, I mean, the, the wholesale... You- Actually, yeah. Give so right now first. at the average BC uh, hydro EV charger, you pay about 27 cents per minute. Now, different cars take electricity at different speeds. So it has always been a bit of a weird pricing scheme. But part of this was related to the federal government's regulations that up until very recently only allowed them to charge per minute because they, I guess, weren't confident they could uh, count how much power you were taking the kilowatt hour so to speak. Uh, But we've largely fixed that and guaranteed that if you pay for six kilowatt hours of electricity, you are getting it. This is a challenge that gas stations have long had to deal with and why pumps have to be regularly serviced to make sure they don't lie to you. If you look on the pumps, there'll be like a little sticker that that seals, I think, over top of the ads. Or maybe I think... Anyway, there's usually a little sticker on there that says, you know, this is being inspected by, I think it's Measurements Canada. I could have the agency wrong, but basically saying, yeah, we've confirmed that this thing actually correctly displays how much uh, gas gets pumped. And, yeah, I believe being able to measure electricity is generally a solved problem, but uh, I don't think anyone had gone through the effort of actually getting the particular um, bits of equipment uh, certified yet. And that's the thing that finally came through. Yeah. And so BC Hydro is looking at going from roughly 27 cents. Uh, it's a little bit less for slower chargers, a little bit more, I think, or that might be the top even uh, for their faster chargers. But they are going to change it to be between three and 60 cents per minute, depending on how fast your charger is. So the fast chargers are like 200 kilowatts. My car takes 75 kilowatts. For example, I have a Kia Nero. Um, So in some cases, this might mean your charge is tripling. Now, I think the key... Yeah, Go ahead. That's more generally for like on a per kilowatt basis than say your average home, um, home bill comes out to on a per kilowatt basis but i presume this is also to cover the cost of the actual setup and everything as well not just uh 
the uh, the marginal cost of every kilowatt hour. Yeah, and I think the more important positioning of this pricing change is that they want to add in power-based charges like we just talked about, and those would range between 33 and 44 cents per kilowatt hour. And when I've gone to different chargers in BC and Alberta, uh, I've only used a couple in Alberta that were per kilowatt or that were per minute, and they were the same as BC, 27 cents. Uh, I did one charger in Kelowna that was 40 cents per kilowatt hour, and that cost me roughly the same to charge up as a per minute charger, right? It cost like 15 bucks to spend an hour at it to go like a full 20 to 85% charge or something like that. And it would be about the same at, at most of the per time chargers. So the per kilowatt hour charge actually seems pretty reasonable to me. It's just like there's a sticker shock here for people. And CBC highlights one guy who bought an electric car, but then doesn't ever charge it home, which is bizarre to me because I charge off my 120 volt standard plug. It takes like a weekend, but it's it's not free, right? But it's pretty damn cheap. Yeah, you're paying like nine something nine something cents a kilowatt hour for the first bit, and then I think it jumps up to like yeah. 14, 15 yeah. cents, I believe. So yeah, still like significantly cheaper uh, than what you would uh, have to pay at one of these. He also said he was saving, he saved 350 bucks in gas on the first uh, month, which is like, how much was the guy driving if he spent it that much in fuel? They found the most bizarre example, (laughs) the most extreme example. We don't have a home charger. I mean, sure, I don't have a home charger either, but you can plug into a wall. So I don't have sympathy for that guy, but I do I do see the challenge BC Hydro here has in terms of trying to cover its costs, but then also taking its main charge and tripling it. And maybe it'll work out that they move all their chargers to power-based charging anyway and just go with that, but uh, I imagine there's going to be a lot of complaints to the BC Utilities Commission about this pricing structure and like i think a key interesting fact here right is we mentioned the convergence of competitors and bc has a number of private competitor uh electric charging stations for evs which are all priced around where bc hydro is and if bc hydro's rates go to you know 50 60 cents per minute i can see a lot of them moving that way and that will start to get annoying for me unless many of them up well in take fact the um... power-based charging it noted it, that um, their first uh, proposal to the Utilities Commission got rejected because it wasn't uh, the uh, got rejected because it was considered anti-competitive and that uh, it would have kept undercutting the other ones. And it was, I think, Petro Canada was the ones that uh, the story notes had raised an objection on that basis on there. So yeah, I I would imagine Petro Canada would follow suit with when it comes to their charge well maybe they could build some chargers that work oh they charge 50 cents per minute right now (laughs) jeez i'm so glad i never used their chargers wow yeah so interesting bit of back and forth there to watch and i think the politics and pricing of electricity is going to be really interesting over 
the next few years, particularly as more people take up electric vehicles. And like I mentioned, using all these apps, I know one thing I think the federal government has been working on, and the US has definitely been working on this, is standardizing that. So there is a requirement that they have to accept credit cards without account activations at each of these places. Like the account apps are kind of useful because you can check in on how your car is charging while you're, I don't know, having lunch and that kind of thing. But I could also do that through my cars app. Or I could just like keep track of time. But EVs are not the only clean energy bit of news in the country this week. The federal government uh, just a week ago announced uh, just after we recorded, I believe, the net zero electricity regulations that are going to be coming through. Um, these are clean electricity regulations that are going to help us get to net zero by 2035. And we now have a chance for, I guess, anyone or province and territories to comment on them and decide whether or not we have made the right framework to get not carbon out of our electrical grid, but phasing it out such that we're net zero within 12 years. Yeah, and I'm guessing if uh, you're the government of Alberta, the answer is going to be no, they're not happy yeah, with it. Yeah, they're not they're happy. Not. Saskatchewan's really not happy. Saskatchewan is claiming their goal is net zero by 2050, and it's unconstitutional for the uh, feds to tell them what to do. Um, and Nunavut's also not happy, uh, mostly because if you have a lot of... Uh, small remote communities those tend to have to run off diesel power and it's uh not easy to substitute anything else in the uh, high arctic for that yeah it does sound like from the cbc reporting that there are exemptions worked in for some of those kind of situations there's no like immediate forced uh conversion to solar for remote communities although i think which is probably good when like half the year of the sun yeah. doesn't shine like i think there still needs to be a lot of thought and work put into that but in terms of the country's climate emissions we can probably accept a bit of diesel burning to keep people alive in those communities yeah it's one of those things that's yeah small overall i mean i'm sure the per capita numbers are terrible there but uh when it comes to like the total output it's pretty small and you know, it'd be one of those things that if the only source of carbon emissions was from this one thing, nobody would care. Yeah. When it's layered on top of I think things. one of the more, I don't know, tangible points of criticism for this policy that I could see a lot of people taking on is that it does keep space for natural gas in our energy mix. And it does so in kind of two ways. First, it says if they work with carbon capture and storage systems, as long as they sequester 95% of their emissions and get down to the equivalent of 30 tons of carbon dioxide per gigawatt hour or less annually, they can be permitted. So there still are allowed emissions from natural gas power plants in this situation. It also exempts natural gas power during emergencies and peak periods when renewables cannot keep up with demand, which is... um. I would have I don't know the the specific language in there but that seems like a loophole that could be exploited on the latter part there for sure. Uh, like it's makes a lot of sense to me actually. Um I mean the big problem with renewables is they are not dispatchable whereas 
gas turbines are um so like just the way the grid works you have to balance pretty much on a second by second basis how much electricity is being produced with how much electricity is being consumed and that's really hard to do with renewables um because even putting aside the intermittency stuff you can't easily just suddenly turn on a bunch when you need it so having something that you can rapidly ramp up and down makes a huge amount of sense uh for just the overall grid system and yeah right now natural gas tends to be one of the better ways to do it on that front so it's one of those things where it's very easy for renewables to displace the first gigawatt of uh, electricity capacity that's carbon intensive. It is very hard to have them displace the last gigawatt. And in that sense, it probably makes quite a bit of sense to focus on, you know, getting everything but uh, peak power uh, production to be decarbonized rather than trying to go for a maximal approach and running into problems with uh not with grid unreliability from not being able to have dispatchable peak power generation capacity yeah like i don't disagree with any of that i think the question i have and we need to find a guest to actually break into this really deeply and i was just uh too busy tired this week as usual to line that up but the question i have is just like the the specific details around this right like is it a very reasonable tightly closed kind of situation where it's you know we accept that there's going to be a couple or is this going to be baking in a reliance on natural gas every time there's a heat wave in the country which will get increasingly frequent uh i should you know flag that we're looking at the headlines right now and yet the city of Yellowknife and the 19, 20,000 people there is being evacuated as we speak because of wildfires. And like, that's not directly related to energy usage, but it's climate change issue, right? And I don't know, things feel bleak. And I just want to make sure we are both being reasonable, but also like fully cognizant of the scale of the um, terror crisis that we are facing and maybe being a little more maximal than reasonable at times while not going 100% there, if that makes sense. Be ambitious is what I'm saying, even if we uh, have to get into fights with Alberta yeah, and Saskatchewan should... from time to time. I think you should pick where you uh, want to focus your ambition though on this and... Um... Energy is a really important way to get yeah. a lot of emissions out, though. Like, we need to... And it the is. other thing highlighted in uh, the clean electricity regulations here, right off the top, is uh, they cite a study that our electricity supply by 2050 will need to at least double. Um, so we need to start building a lot of power, and these regulations will thankfully uh, help us get there. Although... It does note in CBC that these regulations don't kick in until 20 years after a facility has been built. Yeah, well, 20 years for right. existing facilities and ones that are underway now. But any new project that comes on after, I think it was what, yeah. 2025, when these are finalized, 
they're going to have to be compliant from day one. Yeah. Which also made sense. I mean, 2025 is two years from now. There's being ambitious, and then there's you know retrofitting every single plant in a two-year period probably isn't going to happen, uh, even under a best-case scenario. But uh, yeah, a lot of uh, capacities needed, and it probably means a whole lot of uh, big projects as well, not just a lot of like small little ones. So we'll, uh, yeah, no doubt have a future with more dams and probably... Uh, nuclear plants in our future we're going to have to double our total energy out or electricity output in 25-ish years the other big thing the government's got to be looking at is cabinet has been told all these new cabinet ministers uh, and some the very few who kept their jobs have just until october 2nd to cut $15 billion from across government. This was part of the previous budget. It was kind of a vague line of like, we should just do an across the board $15 billion cut from all ministries. And people are like, what does that mean? And like, oh, we'll figure it out later. Uh, they haven't figured it out yet. And kind of sucks to come into a job and your first <laughs> you know, thing you have to do is fire a bunch of people. Well, I mean, if their predecessors... We're doing their job. There should already be the work underway to have this done. Just like you mentioned, this was a budget uh, commitment, so that goes back to March. So it should be the case where everyone's coming in, and uh, they're they're the ones that have to tell their ministries to to start working on it. Uh, so yeah, um, letter came from. Uh, New Treasury Board President Anita Nan. I'm a little curious here how much uh, this is. Uh, there's been speculation about she got a demotion because she was maybe a little too forthright in her aspirations for party leadership. And it, I am a little curious how much of this has to do with. Um, Trudeau wanted to make her the face of some unpopular cuts, or if it's just the fact that Anita Nan has a reputation as someone who uh, tends to be a very uh, take-charge go-getter, has a task in her ministry, and will just plow ahead to try and get it done, uh, minister. So I'm curious which one's the at play here when it comes to all of these headlines about Anita Nan's telling everyone got to shave 15 billion out of the budget yeah unsurprisingly the union uh public sector unions are um not happy they say the government should Doctor. pause these cuts and you can't do this without harming the services like there are headlines right now talking about how the cra is still failing to meet its call targets in terms of like answering the phone um uh, it, yeah, there is on, like on a clear like hand, need to um, be smarter, not smaller, uh, as they say in the article. But, well, but yeah, I will also point out that um, as the article notes, uh, if you were to crack open the uh, 2019 budget and look at what uh, this year's expenses are going to be, it's about $90 billion uh, less they were projecting than we're currently on track to spend. So... 
you know, some of that's tail end of pandemic spending. But like overall, that's, we have significantly more being spent uh, on the government. It's not clear that uh, the federal government has gone any better at actual service delivery and in many cases seems to have gotten worse over that period. So, you know, it would be one thing to say, yeah, we should not do any cuts if, you know, this was like year five of a cutting cycle and, you know, uh, service standards were being hurt. But, you know, if you're spending more and getting the same or less for it, eh, maybe it is a case where uh, it's not a money problem. It's a different kind of problem that's getting in the way. I'm just remembering back, and there were a bunch of stories earlier this year about like the rise of consultancy use in the federal government. And I just, I'm trying to piece together like how much of you know this increase across the government spending can be attributed to this like outsourcing to consultancies and that kind of work because those aren't usually cheap, especially when they know they can build the government whatever they want. Um, but it kind of uh, seven. Uh- Seven billion of the uh, proposed cuts was basically slashing uh, consultants. That's ridiculous. Uh, from the, <laughs> like, and not not uh, in a bad way, period, but it's just but, yeah. like that's an absurd amount of money, and that's like not even probably most of what they've spent on consultancies. Like, I just have trouble sometimes thinking about how big government is, and I know that like fifteen billion over, I think it is five years, is. Not actually a significant amount of government spending, but it's also just like so much money. I'm adding a lot to the podcast today. Oh, <laughs> let's talk about other people adding to the discourse. Jugmeet Singh has finally realized housing is an issue and in a press conference in Edmonton said Trudeau's not doing enough and shouldn't say things like the federal government doesn't have a role in housing. A statement Trudeau made three weeks ago two uh was it two two podcasts ago was when we talked about it and i think that was like the tuesday or wednesday before we recorded uh same statement was over the weekend i don't know call it like a week and a half late after this i mean the conservatives were cutting ads that afternoon and had a video out um within like a day uh doing an attack ad and uh yeah Jagmeet Singh finally made some statements at a press conference and they threw up a press release on the NDP website, so... They didn't really include... Good job sticking with the uh, topical nature of it. Yeah, they didn't really include any new proposals in there. He just kind of reiterated some of their past proposals. Thankfully, nothing about mortgage relief. Maybe, like, subsidized No, that one wasn't in there, I don't think, but he did say there should be more money for housing... Just one of them. And support um, for renters, I believe. He talks about the importance of waiving the federal portion of the GST on affordable purpose-built rentals, improving existing and federal programs to alleviate the impact of interest rates on housing projects to help build more community housing, the creation of an affordable housing acquisition fund. Um, okay, yeah, maybe maybe it was the interest rates thing I was remembering um, on that. Um, okay, yeah, I guess it wasn't in there. Uh the qualifier affordable on the GST rebate's interesting. Um, 
because you know what that means is it's not like the blanket across the board uh removal of gst or hst on rentals which is what pretty much everyone's been calling for this feels like a way more kind of like micro targeted thing and in the the likely net effect is rather than having a big impact on what projects are feasible and actually getting a lot more rental projects to pencil it'll be the case where it's another thing that uh, adds to the overhead of non-profit housing uh, developers were well not actually moving the needle all that much on the uh, housing market overall. I think you're reading way too much into one word in a like hastily thrown together press release like maybe I, it is accurate I, I there's I no like there's no background people play enough games on of this so like yeah. I don't know that it's any more than that like i know you're not wrong I've but also just like seen so many games played around is this affordable enough what does affordable mean when it comes to housing politics and policy that it's the sort of thing that uh jumps out at me if it's not like carefully defined as a oh this is probably going to be a case where it's going to like narrow scopes or complicate things or whatnot anyway so yeah uh the NDP, I guess, realized that uh, people now care about housing a little bit and they should probably occasionally say something about it. It's still weird that uh, both the NDP and Liberals have basically let the Conservatives own the issue to the extent they have. We'll maybe see if the new housing minister does shift things a bit. He was in Vancouver earlier this week uh, announcing... 500 million dollars in loans to get for rental housing that's going to go to get uh 1100 uh rental house homes to help get built it's something it's still a, a drop in a bucket compared to what uh vancouver alone needs to be building but politically at least being out at doing ribbon, ribbon cuttings and announcements that amount to more than like oh here's a project with 40 homes that we're helping fund yeah might help the liberals a bit but i don't know i still think they're probably going to be uh dead in the water unless they can do more than uh just the occasional ribbon cutting yeah this is a it's not a bad announcement it's uh one one hundredth of the scale we need to be doing but uh do a hundred more of these and we can talk i guess yeah and and at least when you're getting into a, the thousands the, uh, the difficulty of late large numbers starts to work in your favor a bit most people don't really know if it's you know a thousand or a ten thousand that's the right number for this stuff um so that's probably better than what uh the former uh, person in that job would do of show up where you know he's a project has like 20 homes being built and talk about how great it is that the federal government cares about housing help that and you know 20 is a small enough number you know what that is and you know it's not going to do much overall at least these numbers are big enough you can kind of get people thinking it's makes a difference at least politically yeah and like 
$500 million as a repayable loan is a really easy policy for governments to be doing. And they could be doing, like governments can borrow a lot of money, really low interest rates. And if they're just reloaning that to developers, no, no yeah, limit. Case, like, there the should be no limit. Is the, is the difference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In that case, the difference is in uh, the difference between the interest they'd chart there uh, to break even from their borrowing and the uh, the market interest that would get charged if they were to go uh, out on the market to try and secure funding is the actual value of the subsidy, not the, the 500 yeah. million. They should be loaning out a trillion dollars. Uh, speaking I mean, that would be roughly the scale you would need because this works out to about uh, four hundred and fifty thousand dollars per home that's uh getting built so yeah you you would need something in the trillion dollars if you were to actually scale it to the uh, the appropriate amount of housing that would need to be built And to the other big crisis happening right now, we've talked climate, we've talked housing, uh, healthcare. Uh, the story he, he out yesterday is from the Bulkley Valley District Hospital in Smithers. CTV News obtained a memo sent to doctors and administrators titled No Physician BVDH ER Coverage Mitigation Plan. It's the uh, breaking case of emergency document of what do you do with for example there are no doctors in the hospital uh the answer is call 911 from the emergency room let's be clear so yeah the, the the plan would be to have nurses in the emergency room who if they're not a there are no doctors that showed up and there was a problem they would call 911 and what that is supposed to accomplish is not entirely clear because presumably the ambulance would take the person to the ER, which is where they already are. It's weird. It's clearly like not thought through at all. And it's also just like absolutely insane that we're at a case where there are just times where there are no doctors in a hospital. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think like where they like could that, get that is the actually next crazy. like hospital to Smithers and it's probably terrace and that's a two and a half hour drive like maybe they could get a helicopter in from i don't know prince george like it's bad it, it, yeah it, at that point people people die yeah. uh and i guess like one of the challenges here and it's not explained whether they've actually had to resort to this level at any point or if they were just trying to get to the point of like exploring every contingency and like what do we do if there are no physicians uh, and it's pointed out in the article by the nurses union that nurses aren't supposed to attend a patient without an overseeing physician and so you're already into a situation where you're asking nurses to work beyond their job description um, and they are able and can refuse to work in that situation um, this isn't helping anything but I mean I guess the idea is the 911 operators will 
I don't know, provide some extra paramedic advice and maybe try and determine whether it's even worth sending a helicopter. But yeah, it's I don't, bleak. Yeah, but like, is a paramedic necessarily going to have better emergency knowledge than a in an ER nurse? That's very much an open question in my mind. Yeah, the, the whole thing is made not a lot of sense when you start thinking it through and like maybe it's a this is the like absolute worst case we'll try and mitigate as much of the damage as possible but like no competent government should have ever let it get to the point where that was ever an open question on this and there have been persistent staffing shortages uh when it comes to doctors uh for a while in a lot of these communities and it is just uh, bizarre that even was allowed to get to this point, or that the uh, the government hasn't taken more heat for it getting to this yeah, point. Yeah, the CTV News article by Penny Duffloss quotes uh, Dr. Sanjeev Gandhi, uh, the Green Party's uh, deputy leader and health critic, who was also my child's heart surgeon. It's very weird seeing him quoted in this context, uh, but he's you know, the harsh critic here, uh, Shirley Bond is also speaking out on behalf of BC United, both of them offering the obvious criticisms. Uh, Dr. Gandhi speaks a little bit more directly from knowledge within health, the health system, noting that he's particularly worried about the respiratory season that's going to come up as people get more sick into the fall, kids go back to school, things start circulating and inevitably some end up in ERs. Um, the article kind of suggests that there could be more done, like expediting credentials of foreign doctors and nurses, allow physicians assistants to work in BC as most other provinces allow, make it easier for doctors to help in hospitals. That's one of those vague ones that like neither of us know the in and outs to delve into. Uh, and then it also highlights that many of these hospitals are restricted by provincial regulations on how much they can work out to pay doctors and so there's an inability to craft better contracts to better attract and retain healthcare professionals because of provincial rules and so like there's clearly a role for the provincial government here and for adrian dix to do something i don't think either of us have the answer but the situation is bad the point is they've had uh yeah many many years to figure this out and they haven't and it's gotten worse to an inexcusable degree on this one and yeah there's there's a bunch they could do like spanning foreign doctors training more doctors here in bc and i mean they've taken steps towards some of those but They've been slow walking it while the system's been collapsing around them. And I just can't help but think if, you know, BC liberals were in government when this happened, we would never hear the end of it. It would be a talking point for the next two decades. And it's kind of weird how much the NDP gets a pass on having the system, the healthcare system, like collapse around them in a bunch of ways. Well, to close off the show, I think we're just going to 
sum up three more stories that we're keeping an eye on. These are the kind of headlines that don't tell us anything other than something will eventually happen. So there's no analysis to bring into play here. First up, the Trudeau government had previously announced that they are going to respond to the Emergencies Act inquiry within six months. That deadline is Friday. Uh, annoyingly, this means they'll probably release something between now our time of recording on Wednesday evening and possibly by the time you're listening to this on Friday or Saturday. Um, maybe maybe they're going to do everything the commission said. I don't even remember what was in there, although CTV News had a helpful refresher. Here in BC, the province has announced that it's going to be working towards bringing in gig worker protection laws this fall. These will be possibly like minimum wage standards for people working for Uber and uh, DoorDash and Lyft and those kind of companies. Uh, it will give minimum pay, possibly uh, some other rights like sick leave or protections. It'll be really interesting to see how that goes, particularly as a larger and larger number of people take up some amount of uh, gig work. And federally, the government has previously committed with the NDP to bringing in a pharmacare bill by and passing it by the end of this year. The previous health minister uh, had dithered a little bit on that, suggesting maybe it won't be passed by the end of the year, and that would put the you know, question to the NDP of whether they're going to trigger the supply and confidence agreement and bring down the government. Uh, the new health minister uh, has said that he is committed to passing that pharmacare bill by the end of the year. That's Mark Holland. So we'll see what comes forward in that and if it's sufficient to keep the NDP on board, which it probably will be because the bill doesn't have to say a lot they don't want an and they don't want an election. Yeah, so I mean, worst case, that scenario I can see is they will tut tut about how terrible the liberals are while continuing to prop them up, which is kind of being their go to move so far. I can't see the liberals slow walking a, a farmer to our bill fundamentally changing that. We'll have to see. The uh, the good worker thing is probably not going to be for another couple months because I believe that ledge doesn't resume until. I think it was early October, I think if that's I recall. Right. Uh, so, so we're still a couple months from, I guess, a month and a half at this point. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Hopefully the uh, Trudeau government actually adheres to its timeline. Not entirely hopeful on that. Um, maybe a little cynical there. But maybe that at least give us something to talk about next week. Because... Uh, yeah, back end of August, otherwise not a lot uh, tends to happen in politics. We will get an interview one of these days. We have, we've had a couple this summer. They've been good. Otherwise, have a great weekend. I'm going camping this weekend with kids for the first time, so that's going to be chaos. Oh, enjoy. Should be fun, though. Thanks. And that has been Playcoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Politoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.